Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Glimmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. Welcome everybody. This is a fantastic edition, a special edition of the uh, NAMSP, the National Association of EMS Physician, Physicians, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, as well as the pre-hospital uh, care, the pre-hospital research Pre-hospital Care Research Forum. I don't even know where I am or what day it is, but it is really exciting to be here with Dr. Farkas. Uh, we have Dr. Hamid and we have uh, Dr. Rudman as panelists today to discuss a sec the second scoping review that this DEI panel has put together. It is always difficult to talk about uh, ethnicity, race, uh, sex, gender, and care that we provide. And this is gonna be a very fun and uh, educational hour. We have uh, also been recording these and we hope to be live as well on YouTube, but uh, please uh, uh, like and share and uh, join us if you're at the NAMSP conference. To, uh, there's multiple sessions in, in, including a pre-con and a track. So, um, Dr. Farkas, uh, take us take it away. Talk to us a little bit about this wonderful work that you have led, and uh, and tell us how we got here. What what made us uh, dig into this? Absolutely. Good morning. Um, so this is our paper, the disparities in emergency medical services care delivery in the U.S. And it is a scoping review. This is all of the wonderful authors who helped make this happen. Um, really quick, we do not have any conflicts of interest, unfortunately. Um, so a little bit about the background, um, David, to kind of answer your question. So this came out of the National Association uh, for EMS Physicians Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Um, it is, if you guys tuned in to the last webinar, it is a similar motivation. Basically, we kind of uh, recognize the lack of literature that pertains to this topic, um, specifically um, you know, uh, the, di the disparities in care, pre-hospital care. Um, this was in conjunction with the EMS workforce review that we um, covered in December. Uh, prior research has shown that there's a lot of differences in healthcare management and outcomes related to patient um, factors such as gender identity, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, perceived inability, et cetera. Um, a couple of examples are, you know, uh, studies performed in clinic and hospital settings have found that these underrepresented um, racial and ethnic minorities, for example, receive less frequent analgesia or pain medication. So this is kind of what the background was and what kind of um, inspired us to perform this literature review. Um, there is a growing body of literature that highlights these types of disparities in pre-hospital care. But when we were looking, there was no comprehensive assessment, no scoping review to get a good idea of what we're dealing with. So, um, and as we all know, delivering high quality pre-hospital care in a culturally competent and equitable manner is 
obviously very important. Um, and we did look at the entire spectrum of the EMS encounter, and that is starting from symptom recognition uh, and calling 911 all the way through to hospital arrival. That's kind of a little bit of the background. So basically, our objective was to summarize the existing literature on disparities in EMS access, EMS care delivery, et cetera, for some socially vulnerable groups that we identified. I'll touch briefly on the methods. Um, just, I don't want to get too much into it, but it was a scoping review of both published, peer-reviewed, and gray literature. And this is our big inclusion and exclusion criteria. Basically, we were looking for underrepresented groups. We went by race, ethnicity, um, gender and gender expression, and as well as sexual orientation. We were looking specifically at EMS-related encounters or events that um, the papers of which had a specific objective or significant results of examining disparities in care for these above mentioned underrepresented groups. We looked from 1960 to present, given kind of like the, the start of EMS back in the 60s, and we included peer-reviewed literature, theses, dissertations, uh, non-journal professional publications, basically the whole spectrum of literature. Um, we did exclude papers if they were not English or not set in the U.S. because we were specifically looking at the state of pre-hospital care in the U.S. And we did actually exclude if there was a disparity noted in the results, but there wasn't like a stated objective or the authors didn't really talk about it in the results or the discussion. We wanted to make sure that this wasn't just incidental findings. Briefly, we had two reviewers um, for each abstract in each article, and they were all trained on the criteria, trained and tested to make sure they understood the criteria. Um, we started out with 10,000 abstracts um, after the duplicates were removed, and we ended up reviewing, uh, excuse me, excluding about 9,700 of those, so we read through a lot of abstracts, um, ended up going with 384 full texts that were reviewed, and then at the end of all of that, ended up including 145 total articles. Um, before I jump on the results, um, David, did you want to talk a little bit more about the methods? Yeah, um, just to say that if you're not familiar with a scoping review, it's a type of systematic review, which is really a great way to do a deep dive into the literature. And um, there are, there are key differences between uh, systematic reviews and scoping reviews. Both are done systematically and have published uh, parameters by which we can kind of make sure we're uh, catching all of the available uh, uh, articles or, or um, studies that are involved. Scoping reviews allow us to do a little bit more of a um, uh, wandering, if you will, if, uh, once we find things and we don't necessarily weigh or rank the evidence. There is a much better explanation and deeper explanation in the last uh, podcast that we did, the last uh, webinar on uh, diversity, that was the workforce diversity that uh, Dr. Farkas just mentioned. So uh, if you, uh, I will put it on the chat, but if you go to YouTube and look for PCRF at UCLA, PCRF AT UCLA, you will find uh, that as well as uh, we'll also put the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee landing site that has links to that as well as uh, some of the other work that's being done in the space. So um, that's all I'll say, I think, about this other than 
uh, it's a it's it's actually really great to hot off the press that um, this is an open access article in PEC. Some of you know that PEC is a publication that's uh, in the top 10 for emergency medicine. And so it's great that they published a scoping review. So congrats uh, to all of the authors. And uh, it isn't common to have the scoping reviews published. So this is even more special. And it's even more special that it's open access. So, so there won't be a barrier to get the information. I think this is kind of uh, one of the ways in which our, in our culture of science, we hope to promote more of this and make it more accessible. And if you have to be a subscriber and that sub subscription costs quite a bit, then you can't get access to it. I will say that if you're an NAMSP member and now hot off the press, if you're an NAEMS E member, you can uh, receive the subscription to PEC for uh, no, at no additional charge other than your membership fee. So um, this is a great advance for NAMSE members that was previously not available. So congrats to NAMSE for making that available. And uh, I am shamelessly uh, plugging PEC and uh, part of their board. So I declare full conflict. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Or let's talk about these amazing uh, articles that we found and, uh, or depressing. Is, it, is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that, uh, addition. So we, uh, there's a lot of different ways to organize this paper and the findings, but one of the ways we did it was by phase of care. Like I was talking about anywhere from EMS access. So knowing to call 911 to pre-arrival care, such as bystander CPR and out of hospital cardiac arrest, to the diagnosis and treatment from EMS providers, and then um, respond, response and transport uh, more from a timing standpoint and a location standpoint. So this is how we split it up. This is one way to look at it. Um, a lot of these uh, phases are not mutually exclusive, meaning that some articles talked about three or more phases, for example. Um, so that is why the numbers here uh, do not add up to 145. Um, but the majority of articles did focus on EMS access or had included it in some point as 55 articles that did that. And here you can kind of see some of the medical conditions that we were looking at. So acute coronary syndrome, uh, diabetic problems, falls and trauma, et cetera. Um, we also had uh, about 45 that 46 that included pre-arrival care, the vast majority of which, except for one, were on out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, EMS diagnosis and treatment, same big categories, and then the response and transport as well, with about 40-ish papers each. Um, any questions or anything to add before we jump into the results in a little bit more depth? And our, our our lines are open, so commentaries are welcome. I know quite a few of you on the on the list of participants today. I know that you've done work in this space, so uh, please share and uh, and make comments in the chat. And in the Q and A, you can direct questions to the group. I'll also uh, poke uh, the uh, the other authors to feel free to uh, turn on their cameras and just jump in. All right. Awesome. So we'll jump into the first one, which is symptom recognition and EMS access. A big takeaway from the data here were uh, from, we divided it by sex and gender and then um, race and ethnicity. So a big data takeaway, excuse me, from the sex and gender section was that women were more likely to recognize stroke and ACS symptoms and to seek EMS care, but they waited longer to do so. Um, so 
just to give you guys a little intro to how I try to visually represent the data is through these articles on the side here, these little papers. So at the top, there are, were 34 total studies that included sex and gender as a variable. So even like mentioned sex and gender and 27 of them uh, ended up reporting on disparities as relates to um, sex and gender category. And here I've tried to do um, uh, kind of give you guys a visual representation of how many papers were uh, basically represented for each statement. So, for example, women were more likely to recognize ACS and stroke symptoms, and there were five papers that discussed that. Um, they were more likely to access EMS when they either experienced these symptoms in themselves or recognize them in others. And there was quite a bit of evidence there. Um, they did uh, also wait longer before seeking care when they experienced these type of symptoms. Um, the findings for EMS access in stroke were a little bit mixed with four studies here showing that women were more likely to access 911 um, and then three studies basically finding no difference, which is what that orange color represents. Moving on to race and ethnicity, in general, non-white patients were less likely to recognize stroke and ACS symptoms and waited longer before seeking care for these symptoms. There were 49 total studies that included this as a variable and 47 of them reported on disparities for this variable. In general, non-white patients and specifically black, Hispanic and Asian patients were less likely to recognize ACS and stroke symptoms. From an overall EMS access standpoint, so regardless of what the chief complaint is or the reason for contacting EMS, um, Black patients, three articles rather, found that Black patients were more likely to access EMS. Two articles found that Asian patients were less likely, and findings on Hispanic patients were mixed, with one finding that they were more likely, and another reporting that Hispanic patients, particularly those with limited English proficiency, were less likely to access um, EMS. Um, this was mostly as a concern for ability to communicate with the Natural One telecommunicators. For accessing ACS, excuse me, EMS for ACS and stroke, the results were quite mixed. There was quite a, a variety of colors here with a couple of articles finding that they were, uh, that non-white patients were less likely, um, a couple finding that they were more likely, and then a couple finding that there was really not, they could not draw a conclusion. Non-white patients, and specifically, again, Black, Asian, and Hispanic patients, waited longer before seeking care for acute coronary syndrome. Um, for stroke, the findings were mixed. One study found they waited longer. One found that um, they didn't. Um, and a couple of studies actually highlighted the barriers to what, like, kind of like a um, panel-type studies that highlighted some barriers to why they weren't calling EMS. So for Hispanic patients, um, they were concerned about costs. There was concern for distrust of law enforcement. There was obviously language issues as well. And there was concerns for immigration status, thinking that perhaps you know, EMS is linked with um, the immigration services. Um, cost was also highlighted as a concern for Black patients and why they weren't calling EMS as well. This is the only slide you will see on sexual orientation because it is the only paper that we have found in our search that um, talks about this specific underrepresented group. Uh, but in general, sexual minority men and women of non-white race had lower awareness of heart attack and stroke symptoms compared to white heterosexual patients. And uh, gay men were more likely to access EMS than heterosexual men, specifically in ACS.
any questions or anything to add before we move on to the next phase of EMS care? Well, I'll jump in if it's a, if there's always a lull here and there. Uh, I I love um, that you have given us uh, a really deep dive into all of the literature available to us today around EMS and its and disparities of care. And so while we knew some of this story from some of the articles that had made it kind of across our, our, uh, our line of sight, um, it is, it is uh, just very helpful to have a, a comprehensive look at this. And um, wouldn't you agree, Remley, that this is uh, nice to be able to just say this is the state of the science? Yeah, absolutely. And I love that this scoping review included the pre-arrival EMS care, because I think a lot of times we're very focused on what's within the control of EMS. And so if we're looking to reduce disparities in stroke care or in care for acute coronary syndrome, it's really tempting to think, oh, well, it's the same time under 10 minutes, under 20 minutes or whatever. But it actually that longest delay and the biggest opportunity to make a difference is in the delay in seeking care. And so EMS sits at that unique intersection between public health, public safety, and healthcare. And it tells us that, well, maybe we should be thinking about our community outreach if we really want to have a big impact on health equity and how people access care in the first place. And so I just wanted to give some big kudos to the team for thinking through not just the acute phase of EMS care, but how EMS fits into that continuum. Yeah, and I like Colin King's <laughs> comment here. It's... Um, it's difficult uh, to define, especially because different. There's so many studies included in this in this review. Each study may have defined the and 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 it changes over time, right? Because we went back in time, so our ability to capture the um, gender, sexual orientation, identity, uh, and um, uh, and just uh, multiracial, if not uh, single race, uh, just the way that that's captured in each one of these different uh, projects is a little bit different. So Colin's point is is um, really important. And the, the stronger we can make our databases and stronger we can um, make our, at least our terminology, uh, the better chance we have of talking about apples to apples and, and and really defining that a little bit better. I like Colin's point too. I, I think it brings up this idea that these components are not something that happen in isolation and that there can be interaction effects and there can be stack ups within these key variables and those certainly warrant consideration. So you know, in some studies, something to consider is, well, are the results the same for Black women as for black men or white men. And so these interaction variables become really key. And we can see that the effect can can have a different slope. And I, I won't get super mathy here, but the effects can be really different when we are taking those things in their full context. So that's a great point. And we definitely need more research in that area. I loved how AHA recently and, and Dr. Hammond can jump, jump in because I think she did a podcast about this that uh, there's just um, a tremendous difference in in the way that um, uh, populations within cities 
have access to some care and not others, right? Um, we're quick to call, you know, and some people may be surprised about terminology like food deserts in the middle of a city, how you can't get to a grocery store and get healthy food. But um, the, the same, we can, I'm going to start calling these CPR deserts or uh, stroke deserts, where apparently we just can't seem to identify uh, the stroke and, um, and or call for help. So uh, access and trust in the system and also the system responding to that uh, and caring is, is just a, a big part of that. Uh, David, this is Ricky. I just wanted to uh, say something. I'm hello, everyone. Sorry. Hi. I'm coming off of. I know. Sorry. Uh, I just got finished teaching a training, but I did also want to, um, you know, point out because one of the things that um, Dr. Sylvia Wusuansa and myself were involved in was, you know, the um, a prayer gathering for Damar Hamlin and really giving some onus to EMS and, you know, understanding CPR. And it was interesting that after that, a lot of people took from that from the community of seeing that there was trust within medicine and within the medical field and wanting to have more people come to the community. And it was interesting of how it built this momentum or this jumpstart of how this now is important. And I would say that, you know, being reflective upon who's delivering the message that sometimes we can be, you know, invested in community engagement activities and then think that they're failing, but however, missing sometimes the underlying message of why this education is not going, but because there may not be that trust with the person that, you know, has been established yet who's teaching. So I did want to also put out that, you know, from this, you know, scope review of looking at the community and neighborhood focused, you know, knowledge and how there is such a need for that education. And even when something can jumpstart to start this momentum to make sure that we are recognizing that we still need to build that trust within these communities for them to really absorb that information for them now to really transpire into having a better health and better health outcomes because they have more education that they've taken hold of. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for your uh, input. Also, uh, Dr. Tripp definitely just gave away our big conclusion. So thank you for that. Um, wonderful. So uh, moving on to the next phase, which is pre-EMS arrival care, um, which we also felt like was important to include in the spectrum. Big takeaway from sex gender standpoint, female patients were less likely to have a bystander AED placed. Um, so, uh, basically all of the studies, um, there was 18 studies that included, uh, I'm sorry, that is actually a mistake. This should be, uh, 29 and 27 reported on sex and gender disparities up at the top, but, um, there was no consensus on CPR training. Uh, one study found that women were more likely to be CPR trained. One found that they were less likely and one found no difference. There was also not really a clear cons consensus on bystander CPR, there was a couple of studies that found that women were less likely to receive it. One that found that pediatric female patients were more likely to receive bystander CPR and five studies that found no difference. Um, however, when we look at AED placement by bystanders and the likelihood of receiving shocks prior to EMS arrival, there is a big difference. Um, this was supported by three studies, but they found that female patients were less likely to have AEDs placed and less likely to receive uh, shocks prior to EMS arriving on scene. 
Similarly, um, when we looked at race and ethnicity, non-white patients in general were less likely to get bystander assistance, and that included CPR and AED placement. Here, we did have one article that was not about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Um, it looked at conditions such as seizures, bleeding, respiratory issues, et cetera. And it found that specifically Black patients encountered by EMS in public locations were less likely to have received bystander support for uh, basically a bunch of uh, these conditions. Um, in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, the data here is a little bit more robust and showed that Black, Hispanic, and other race or ethnicity patients were less likely to receive both bystander CPR and AED placement. Um, for the training standpoint, uh, the data trended towards non-white individuals being less likely to be CPR trained. And something that was interesting that came up out of these studies was that they had surveyed um, Hispanic patients or Hispanic individuals who basically had expressed discomfort in performing CPR in public, more so than non-Hispanic individuals. They were concerned about um, immigration status, about language, and really just fear of touching somebody um, was some of the concerns that they had brought up. Any questions or anyone want to um, add anything here before we jump into the next phase? Hi, oh, yeah, um, this is Amir. Uh, I, I think that, you know, that slide that you just showed is really impactful. I mean, uh, you can just see the sea of blue for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and racial and ethnic minorities being less likely to receive bystander CPR and AED placement. Um, there was a recent study out of New England Journal of Medicine um, that uh, did not was not published by the time that we had put this article out, but it showed the same thing. And I think it's really, really, there's a, there's a ton of data basically that shows this same finding. Um, and a lot of that is thought to be due to, you know, less training within this community, also uh, less culturally competent training, um, and then less access to free or low-cost training. Also, dispatcher-associated CPR or telecommunicator CPR is something that, um, that we see in some of our um, uh, some of the communities that have a higher socioeconomic status, and it may not be available to communities where there's a lower socioeconomic status. So I think that we can do more as uh, medical professionals and EMS professionals to advocate for that dispatcher-associated CPR so that patients are getting chest compressions prior to EMS arrival, um, and also advocating for um, low and free um, bystander CPR training courses for those that need it the most. Um, it's also very interesting and not surprising that uh, our racial and ethnic minorities have a higher incidence of sudden cardiac arrest um, and also have lower bystander rates and lower survival overall. So if bystander CPR is going to help anyone, um, this is the group of patients that we really, really want to target um, because the incidence is higher, the outcomes are poorer. So. The AHA, I know Dave, you had mentioned um, the AHA, but they have this awesome toolkit um, called Reducing um, Disparities in Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. Um, I believe that's the name of it. I'll pop it in the chat down here for um, all of the, the viewers. Um, but that's a toolkit that you can use as a medical professional to look at your community that you're serving to make sure that you're um, providing care in the areas that are hit most with uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and also provides a few metrics, ways that you can put together your own CPR training program um, to impact outcomes within your own community. So 
those are some thoughts. And also please share your MRAP uh, webinar link. We, uh, uh, we'll, we'll put that up on the DEI committee uh, uh, landing page, but I think uh, doing a, a deeper dive on the entire issue of bystander CPR and AD placements is uh, essential in order to try and correct some of the inequities. So um, uh, couldn't spend more time talking about that. Uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, we've we've had years and years of examples of community-based CPR programs really make, making an impact, and uh, we just seem to have ignored entire, like I said, CPR deserts. Uh, it's like, a, it's like a, we just don't do it in certain parts of our cities. I, I wanted to add as well, I think that that's the example that we was, was just up of, of uh, AD and CPR treatment, I think it's really illustrative of the way that inequities kind of function to then create tangible health disparities. And I think sometimes it can be really hard to pin down exactly where, from where disparities arise, because it's sort of death by a thousand cuts. And there's so many, there's many factors along the way that lead to disparities. But if we, you know, um, thinking about some of the things we've just talked about, that non-white patients are less likely to, re to recognize ACS uh, and stroke symptoms then wait longer to seek care. And then we see that when they do have maybe that cardiac arrest from the ACS that wasn't, uh, you know, prompt, they didn't promptly get to a facility, they have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and then they're less likely to, to get CPR and AED, well, now you're going to have a mortality difference. And so I think it's really, uh, when we're looking at disparities, having that kind of 10,000-foot view of each step along the way, we can see kind of where, whether it's racism, whether it's systems issues, whether it's implicit bias, wherever, from wherever these inequities arise, that each step along the way, there's a small impact, and that adds up to a really tangible difference. And I want to just share, um, uh, Keats uh, sent us a nice message to the hosts and panelists about why the disparity with women receiving bystander CPR and AED. Is it social concerns or um, exposing women's chests? I think that's definitely uh, part of it. And Dr. Farkas here answered uh, they, that was identified in a, in a few of the studies uh, in just also the lack of training with female anatomy CPR mannequins is a big deal. Uh, I think that the way in which even mannequins have always been uh, uh, pink and I'll just use a generic uh, uh, pink color, uh, and also the fact that um, uh, in in the advanced life support world, um, uh, paramedics and, 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 and especially EMS providers that put on 12 lead EKGs just don't ever get practice with uh, some sort of simulation that helps them determine how and where to place ECG leads when uh, there are breasts involved in a patient. So it's a, it's a, um, I think a problem with our simulation strategy and hopefully those of you listening, cause I see there's quite a few instructors, EMS instructors here can think about prosthetics and, and props that can be used inside our sim labs to help uh, at least our EMS providers be more comfortable with that, but bystanders uh, to actually put, uh, AD pads is, is another big, big uh, element of that. So thanks, Keats, for the comment. And, and um, 
I see Amira put the toolkit on on uh, on the chat as well. Feel free to uh, use the Q and A area as well for questions and just uh, share your own thoughts in the chat. So um, as we continue, um, take it away, Dr. Parkas. Awesome, thank you. So we'll move on to uh, diagnosis and treatment. Big takeaway was that female patients were less likely to be correctly diagnosed. And uh, there was a couple of acute conditions that they were less likely to receive treatment for. So um, EMS clinicians had a lower rate of correctly diagnosing stroke and other health conditions when the patient was female compared to male patients. And that was supported by two studies. The management of ACS, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and pain was largely inconclusive. For ACS, for example, there was no clear consensus if there was differences and disparities in things such as EKGs, aspirin, nitroglycerin for ACS. Um, a couple of studies found that the female patients were less likely to receive those uh, interventions. A couple found there was no difference. And then purple, which is a new color there, uh, found that basically varied based on the condition or the specific treatment. So maybe aspirin was less, but nitroglycerin was more or something like that. Out of hospital cardiac arrest management by EMS providers was also pretty inconclusive. A couple of studies found that female patients were less likely to have things such as CPR, defibrillation, and medications, although a lot of those studies did not um, compare or, excuse me, control for the type of AC, uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, so whether it was shockable or not. Um, one study found no difference, and then two studies found uh, basically based on the intervention you're looking at variable differences. And then pain management was actually also inconclusive. There was two studies that found female patients in general received less analgesia, one that found they received more analgesia, and then one that found differences based on type of complaint, and three found there was no difference. So really um, some inconclusive data on this type of management. But when we were looking at receiving epinephrine for anaphylaxis and naloxone in opioid overdose, studies found that female patients were much less likely to receive those critical uh, crucial and critical interventions than male counterparts. And I just want to clarify in case people are kind of half listening and playing with their phones and answering what they do in their daily lives, that this is just about uh, sex uh, and gender, correct? So we're not really, we have very conclusive evidence uh, regarding pain management and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest management for uh patients of diverse uh, races and socioeconomic levels. This is really only talking about the difference here uh, between sex and, or gender, right? Correct. And we have, yes, the next slide will cover yes. what you're referring to. Cool. Okay. <laughs> um, and so speaking of, uh, in general, non-white patients were less likely to be correctly diagnosed and to receive analgesia. So when we look at diagnosis specifically, um, there's only one article each kind of talking about these, but the diagnosis by an EMS clinician was less likely to be correct when the patient was Black or Hispanic. Um, when we are talking about strokes, there was a lower rate of diagnosis in Asian and Hispanic patients. And specifically in Black patients, even when the um, diagnosis was made, there was a lower rate of pre-arrival stroke notification to hospitals. Furthermore, 
Um, for analgesia specifically, there's quite robust evidence that Black, Hispanic, Asian, and American Indian and Alaska Native patients were less likely to receive analgesia. Um, ACS management and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest management by EMS providers was actually inconclusive. Um, there was mixed data on whether or not they received the same amount of interventions or less, um, and I won't go into the details for that. Um, but for naloxone specifically, that did not differ by race or ethnicity. Any questions or anything to add before I moved on to our final phase? Wonderful. So finally, EMS response and transport. In general, female patients had longer pre-hospital intervals in ACS and stroke, and they were less likely to be transported to a trauma center when they were injured. So um, the pre-hospital intervals specifically we're talking about in ACS and stroke are things such as overall pre-hospital time, on-scene time, scene-to-hospital time. Um, two studies did find no difference compared to male patients, but there were quite a few studies that did find that that pre-hospital -pre interval in general was prolonged. When we're looking at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, there was no difference um, in pre-hospital intervals between male and female patients, and that was pretty well supported by four, um, four articles. Uh, in diabetic problems and falls and trauma, female patients were more likely to be transported in general. But when we looked at specifically injured female patients, we found that they were less likely to be transported to a trauma center. And that was supported by two different articles. When we look at race and ethnicity for this category, non-white patients were more likely to be transported to safety net emergency departments in general and they were less likely to be transported in general, transported um, in trauma. The findings on ACS, cardiac arrest and stroke were pretty inconclusive. You see this nice rainbow of papers. Um, in ACS, you know, uh, one study found shorter transport intervals, one found longer, et cetera. Um, same thing for cardiac arrest and stroke. When we're looking at the destination of transport, Black and Hispanic patients were more likely to be transported to a safety net emergency department with the mean transport time being similar, meaning that um, it was the same distance or transport time between the two emergency departments and between uh, Black and Hispanic patients and white patients, and they tended to be transported to the safety net emergency department more frequently. In falls and trauma, specifically, Black patients were less likely to be transported in general. When they were transported, however, they were more likely to be transported to a trauma center, um, and this uh, held the mean transport distance being similar um, as well. Any questions before we move into the gray literature? More of a comment, but I, I think that these findings there at the end show some important considerations around systems of care. Um, and one of the big things, and we just recently also published an article looking that wouldn't have been eligible to get in here, but showing that patients from the same zip code belonging to different races and ethnicities end up going to different hospitals. And so you start to think through what are the drivers behind that? And we get into complex cultural history and things like redlining where people may live on different sides of the zip code. But what we do know is that 
there, we're not going to the same destinations and that likely has an impact. And so I think what these articles really make us do is to start thinking about design of systems and how we can design to have more equitable care. Yeah, thank you so much for adding that in. So when we looked at the gray literature, we really only found two articles or two publications that we wanted um, that we met all of our inclusion criteria. One of them was a qualitative, but they were both qualitative studies. Um, the first one was a focus group with 76 potential patients um, and then their feedback on kind of like the use of EMS. Um, and they separated them by race and ethnicity. And I just caught some uh, interesting highlights that I thought were great to share. So African-American respondents um, felt like EMS workers should listen more to learn more about their culture. And they were afraid that the workers treated them differently based on their neighborhoods or their communities. Um, Lao, and I, I, I'm not gonna mess up the pronunciation of those other two um, ethnic groups, but they felt that workers were not attuned to their cultural communication styles in emergency situations and expressed a preference for workers, EMS workers that look like them. Vietnamese respondents um, felt like they wanted EMS uh, clinicians to understand that there are cultural variations in the manner in which they express their needs um, in both verbal and nonverbal communication. And Hispanic respondents indicated a preference for bilingual workers, understandably, for ease of understanding, um, and also um, wanted to express some family and religious views that kind of had an impact on their uh, health context in general. There was also a second article um, that basically interviewed transgender potential patients, as well as EMS clinicians, surveyed them, and found that 85% of EMS clinicians felt confident caring clinically for transgender patients, but 84 of potential transgender patients did not feel confident in the ability of them to receive um, knowledgeable care when they needed to summon EMS. A significant number of the transgender respondents who had had a previous encounter with EMS um, actually had some complaints that they were misgendered, uh, both unintentionally and unintentionally, or excuse me, intentionally and unintentionally, um, with some having actually been apologized to, um, others feeling, leaving the encounter, feeling like they were um, harassed. So big conclusions. Uh, this is always a surprise at the end of every article, but uh, we do need more research. Um, there's few studies in general that focused on strategies for reducing these disparities. And we did identify that for example, most of the pre-arrival care literature is focused on cardiac arrest and not a lot of the other stuff. But we know that bystander interventions can affect outcomes for a whole host of different emergencies. Um, so things like respiratory distress, hypoglycemia, choking, all things that we know bystander intervention is important, um, but we don't really have any data um, looking to, to see if there's any disparities in that. And when we break it by specific um, phases of care, when we looked at EMS access, we, our big kind of takeaway was that we need to do targeted, um, culturally competent outreach within the communities, kind of, you know, like how uh, Dr. Tripp was talking about this, to improve symptom recognition and increase timely access to appropriate care. Um, we need to, as a community, increase education and outreach to the populations we serve to build that trust with these populations and really specifically for um, our Hispanic community based on their uh, responses to the surveys, emphasize the lack of ties with immigration services, um, I think is important to reduce that barrier to calling 911. 
when we look at pre-arrival care, um, community training and education is obviously going to be huge. Um, and EMS systems, uh, it falls upon us to kind of invest in combating these disparities, specifically in Black and Hispanic communities, to develop some training programs that are sensitive to demographic, language, et cetera, culture, um, education level differences to provide that important education. When it comes to EMS treatment, unconscious or implicit bias may be a huge driver of these observed differences, um, specifically something like differential treatment and pain. And so strategies to mitigate the effects of unconscious bias are really important and um, obviously very much so needed. And in general, as kind of a big takeaway is, you know, quality improvement programs within each EMS system um, would be helpful if that took into account the variabilities in performance by patient demographic and their effects on outcomes. Um, we know that the underlying causes of these findings are very complex and very multifactorial. There's social determinants of health that has a huge influence, um, implicit bias, et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we know that it's there's a lot going on, but if we can tackle it one little piece at a time. Specifically for implicit bias, the national um, EMS education standards changed in 2021 to highlight, uh, to include cultural humility and awareness of implicit bias training but there's not really a framework rooted in evidence for how to go about carrying out that training. Um, and, you know, a big takeaway also is that it's important to have a workforce that is representative of the population. And I will direct you guys to the other scoping review that we had talked about in December um, to kind of talk more about that. But we, we feel like that will also help take away some of these disparities in care. And that is all I had. I'm sure you're sick of me speaking. If anybody, any of the other authors. Oh, no, wanna... we're not sick of you. What is this uh, self-deprecation? No, 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 no. Um, uh, uh, we we are, I think, uh, riveted and fascinated and trying to absorb uh, all of the different points you made. And so um, I'm, I I think everybody's just kind of in, I, I, I like the, some of the comments uh, coming through and then, uh, I'm with you, uh, Edward. I, it, it just feels like um, what you know. What we're when we become aware of a problem and we can't really. I don't think it's okay to ignore it anymore. We need to take some action. And and so um, I think Andra talked about a, concrete, specific actions that we can take. Uh, and and I'll, I'll put a shameless plug in for more research because. Um, your point, uh, Edward, about uh, tracking um, the non-transport and refusal of patients is really important. If they never make it into the system, there won't be any disparity other than they just never got any care whatsoever, the biggest disparity of them all. Uh, so it's, um, I think, really clear that uh, we have you know, a problem in terms of disparities with, for example, age. Uh, people talk a lot about the lift assist and the non-transport of that that uh, uh, type of uh, response. However, I think there's a, a really important story to be told about uh, the perception of EMS providers in that they, their concept of feeling like you know every call that uh, comes in must be a life-threatening emergency or else it's just a waste of their time. And in particular, when patients don't have access to care, uh, we've seen some horrific things lately uh, where you know we're not gonna we're not gonna carry you. 
uh, we're not going to, you know, uh, uh, afford you the same courtesy and attention that we would any other patient because uh, we just don't think you're you're worthy of this because you're not you're not uh, in in the category of types of patients that we think that EMS should be responding to. So um, I, uh, this is a, a, a wicked multidimensional problem, I think. Uh, Remley, do you agree we need more research? Come on, back Always. me up. Always, that's job security. <laughs> <laughs> I have conflict of interest. <laughs> so, but I did want to hop in with Edward's comment because I, I think it's an interesting one. You know, we're talking about distinguishing non-transport from refusal. Yes, there are dispositions in our data set. And I also think there's an interesting conversation to be had, and, and there isn't research into this per se, but around who initiated the refusal, right? There's a way of asking somebody if they want to go to the hospital of, hey, you want to go to the hospital? Or I'm really concerned about what might be going on with your heart. I think we should get you checked out in a hospital where they can take better care of you. Very different attitudes and body language and our cultural competence and trust building. All of these things are edited throughout, you know, woven in throughout any of these studies. Uh, and that's something that's really challenging to study when you're looking retrospectively at EPCR data. And so that speaks to this need for prospectively collected data as well. And then I did see that we have a question in the Q&A, Dave, so perhaps we can bring it in. But talking about the intersection from Karn around the workforce with the patients treated. So looking for this provider concordance between the EMS clinician and the population served. Um, so I have some thoughts around this, but Dave and other authors, please jump in. I'm curious around your thoughts. I don't think that we found any studies that included this, but it is an interesting aspect. I love it. I love it. I I, I think um, Andra started talk, talking about uh, the findings and some of what we saw in terms of feeling more comfortable if you have a provider who looks like you or speaks your language, et cetera. So um, there's definitely advantages to, to that. Um, but uh, in, in many diversity projects I've been involved with, I get, I get hit uh, uh, pretty hard by my own peers about why it is that I think that suddenly we should, you know, try to have every ambulance match the type of patient, uh, you know, and the, the, the expertise of the provider, uh, whether it be language or community understanding. And I, I don't know that, that anybody's advocating for that. I think concordance is wonderful. And in a hospital, you can call somebody over who may, may know that in an EMS environment, it's a lot harder to get the right, uh, you know, concordance to occur. But I do think that um, particularly implicit association and all of the what we've learned about IAT and, and sort of the uh, EMS providers are very quick to tell you that is that, that when they're going to a nursing home, they immediately have biases. Like they're already, you know, uh, there's a, a, a Rolodex, uh, or maybe that's a dated term. There's a there's an Outlook uh, 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 data bank of all the calls they've been to, and at one particular nursing home versus another. So people admit to their biases right away when it comes to uh, patients that are older, but then uh, uh, or neighborhoods that are poorer, perhaps, or uh, areas where we might have a concentration of people who speak a different language. But there's not a real effort to kind of say, okay, how does that affect my my care, and how can I how can I uh, uh, really get close to that patient? Um, 
Uh, Ricky, jump in, jump in. Don't be shy. Uh, no problems. <laughs> you know, I'm never shy. Um, what I was going to say is that um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why there is a large push for having multifactorial approach for increasing diversity in the workforce, because that even though you may not have as many diverse employees to have that race concordance, however, having those employees to help with understanding different cultural aspects, that also will how, allow you to learn that when you are dealing with a certain patient population, that you may have extra knowledge for that cultural humility and that understanding when you do have that interaction. Uh, so I would say that definitely, you know, trying to increase the diversity workforce, but now going to middle schools, elementary schools, and starting off very young with saying that EMS is an attainable profession. So when I've gone to different schools and things of that nature, I can't tell you how many times where I'm where I have um, you know communities of color in these schools where they're like, "Wow, I've never met a black doctor," or "Wow, I've never met a black EMS person," and and there's, you know, and so there's that issue of not thinking that this can be an attainable profession within these schools. So we do need to break that cycle. But then also, you know, being involved with the communities and that outreach with now recognizing that, hey, we care about you. Because a lot of these communities don't have that trust in thinking that we care about you. So even if you don't have that race coordinates, if you've done engagement within these communities and they're familiar with you, they trust you. And I think that's one of the things to really emphasize upon what is the trust building that we're doing with these communities. We can have as many activities as possible, but we need to make sure that we're focusing on that trust. Thank you. Love it. And, and I think that's humility, right? Uh, if we evolve past awareness and understanding, I think we reach the moment of humility and we can uh, respect somebody's just uh, their, their perspective, their belief system, uh, their identity, their culture, and um, quit calling this a melting pot and start calling it a gumbo soup. Uh, the, the celebration of that difference and the respect of the difference then um, it, it is enhanced when we have different providers and we, we're now uh, learning about different cultures because, uh, you know, we happen to be working with somebody who is trans or identifies as a non-binary and have the opportunity to learn about their experience and therefore enhance our patient care. So I don't think it's a direct one-to-one uh, -one patient care to, to kind of address Karen's uh, comment, but, but even more to address her comment, it is, I think, upon us to uh, celebrate the differences and, and make uh, environments that are safe so that people can report those differences without feeling like they're, they'd be in jeopardy. I don't know that my uh, uh, non-binary partner that I worked with just the other day would be comfortable reporting that to their employer and 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 saying, hey, you know, uh, this is important to me. If that space isn't absolutely 100% safe and therefore better better able to keep track of what are our workforce diversity. And and I know Jordan did a bunch of research on this, and he's got his camera on. Uh, so Jordan and Andra, take it away. I was uh, one thing I was just going to add to. I think this is sort of what you're you're getting at, Dave. So I don't want to read what you just said because I think you said it very well. But um, I'll just kind of give an example from my my prior career in EMS that I 
I think one of the other sort of um, things we don't talk about as much in terms of increasing workforce diversity is it's not to me just about clinician patient concordance, as you said, because we don't expect that every clinician, every patient are going to look or sound or, or, or have the same beliefs, all, all of those things. Obviously, that's not realistic, nor is that the goal. But there's also an effect of having a more diverse workforce on the people in that workforce and the way that that changes the culture of the system. And that, you know, I would hypothesize that over time would help to build that community trust that Ricky was talking about and would help to kind of improve um, some of those disparities sort of from the bottom up. One example I think of from my own experience in prior EMS is that I worked in an area with predominantly white providers like myself and a Spanish speaking uh, population, uh, Latino population. And uh, you would often hear things like, uh, you know, racist terms like, oh, the, the Hispanic panic or, you know, total body dolor, some of those racist terms that I'm sure we've all heard through EMS regarding um, cultural perceptions of pain or, or uh, acuity. And so just think about if you are in a service where instead of being now all white providers, suddenly there are Spanish speaking, there's some there are Latino providers you're working alongside, are you going to be as likely to say something like that? And if, if you're not as likely to say something like that, that means that the new hire, like me, who comes in, isn't going to be hearing those things anymore. And that's going to have an effect over time. And so that's just kind of one way I think about increasing workforce diversity, having a maybe a less measurable, but a, a sort of grassroots from the bottom up benefit for EMS culture. Love it. Love it. Andra, did you, did, did you want to jump in? I did not, but I believe uh, Dr. Hamid had something to say. Okay. Um, yeah, I just wanted to uh, totally agree. And I think that, you know, bias is certainly a driver of health disparities. Uh, and we know this is no longer an opinion or a thought and a probably it's an absolutely. Um, it changes the way that we, you know, walk into a space like you were mentioning, Dave. It changes our clinical decisions. It leads to poor health outcome for, outcomes for our marginalized populations. And a lot of us hesitate to address bias, particularly within our EMS systems. We don't want to make people angry. We don't want to make people feel guilty, you know, because people will feel that we're calling them sexist, we're calling them racist. And we tiptoe around the subject. Um, but without addressing bias directly, addressing its impact on colleagues within the workforce, addressing its impact on our patients, um, what we end up doing is inadvertently upholding the status quo. We're telling people that we can continue on like this despite us having um, data that shows that our patients are suffering and our workforce is suffering. So I hope that this study um, really galvanizes the EMS community to go ahead and you know start doing something about it, address the bias um, and address the holes and the gaps in our EMS system. Um, the second thing I wanted to say is that, you know, a lot of the studies that we found addressed race and ethnicity, sex, gender, but very few, if any, looked at sexual orientation. You know, like Dr. Farkas was showing, this is the one study we found, you know, that addressed it, this patient population. But, I mean, all of us know someone, you know, from that patient population. So it's bizarre that there are no studies that look at this. Um, and then as far as like the medical conditions, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, ACS, stroke, those are the most studied. We heard a teensy-weensy amount about trauma. We heard a teensy-weensy amount about pain control. But what about all the other medical conditions? What about seizure? What about respiratory distress, respiratory arrest? What about, you know, uh, is someone, I mean, I've certainly had someone drop off a patient to me that was post-ictal that then seized right after EMS left. 
but EMS told me this patient was playing possum, you know, so our biases certainly um, change the way that we engage with patients with different medical conditions. Um, so uh, along those lines, I'll just, my final comment is that, you know, we need more research, yes, but we also need more interventions. We need interventions that actually address these holes and, and, and interventions that we then study to see whether or not they were impactful. Um, that way we can replicate them um, and, and grow them so that we are having an impact on health disparities. Um, and I know I said that was my last comment, but my last, last thought that just came to mind is that you see one EMS system, you see one EMS system. You know, um, we really have to look at our own systems. We need to do QA, QI on whatever it may be, whether it's midazolam, Versed, and our, or our, you know, whatever medication we're using in the pre-hospital care. Are we using it equitably? Are certain patients getting it more than others? We really need to set some standards and, and look at the way that we're treating our patients in our own systems to make sure we're treating them fairly and, and we're not causing inadvertent inadvertent poor, poor health outcomes for them. So, oh, that is, it is so well put. I want to end on that, on, on, on that. Uh, uh, I'm so tongue-tied because I think uh, you did a great job, uh, wonderfully explained, and let's do something about it. It doesn't need to be perfect. I've heard you say uh, what, what I think Sandy Hunter said one time, which is, uh, uh, you know, let's not get paralysis by overanalysis or perfection paralysis. Let's uh, let's address it and uh, quit quit uh, pretending like it's not there. So I do hope that this uh, study helps move that conversation into the into the forefront and 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 quit quit pretending like it it doesn't exist and take a hard look at, at uh, even baby steps that can be done to, to improve it. Um, our time is so short, because I also, Amira, would want you to talk a little bit about the intervention you did in, in Chicago. And uh, if if people get a chance to see uh, 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 see you and talk with you in uh, Tampa at the NAS NAMSP conference, then um, uh, that would be awesome. I think uh, just you know discovering what today's interventions look like and talking about what you and Deb did and and it's 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 time that um, uh, these things just don't just end with someday somebody. Um, so congratulations for doing that and I and I hope people will come up to you and feel comfortable uh, talking to you because there's much much that we want to learn from you. So thank you. We we must go ahead go ahead go ahead. You, you, oh, yeah. I you know uh, I hope that a lot of our attendees will come to NMSP and you can hear a little bit more about it. But just a very brief fifteen second synopsis is that um, instead of just talking about bias and learning about bias um, and and doing nothing with that information, we decided to actually act upon it with Sandy's words in the back of my mind, you know, uh, we can't have paralysis by overanalysis, and we decided to do something about it. So we actually have our own homegrown unconscious bias training for fire and EMS. Um, and it's led by um, myself as an uh, associate medical director, and then also Chief Deborah Sand or Summer, who is amazing and so knowledgeable and has years and years of experience in the field. And I think we both bring something to the table uh, to, to make this an impactful experience. And what we found is that after that four hour training, we've actually had EMS professionals staying after the class to ask us 
more, to learn more. The feedback is we need more talks about bias. We need more talks about microaggressions. We need more talks about the data in the pre-hospital setting and how our patients are suffering to make sure we're doing the best for our patients. So what we're finding is that most of our providers actually want to do the right thing. They want to make sure that they're treating people, you know, equitably and fairly. They're just not being given the tools to do so. So that's what we're doing. And, you know, hopefully I can chat with some more people at MSP about it, but Thanks, love it, love it. And if not, we're just going to do another special edition uh, webinar. We're going to keep doing them, Karin. Absolutely, we're going to uh, have them over there. Uh, have them as free CE. We gotta, we gotta get get the word out. Uh, unfortunately, we we today are coming to a uh, to a conclusion. And so, uh, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for participating. We hope to see you again, uh, and please let us know if there's anything in particular that we uh, should be focusing on. You are um, a part of this community, and you will uh, make this research actually come to life by doing something about it. So, uh, uh, Remley, please take it away for the outro, and we will uh, uh, thank you again.